Well, today we continue on in our study of Genesis. A study thus far where we have stood amazed as we've watched our Lord create the entire cosmos with his words and wisdom and beauty and all very good. But last week, we reached a great turn in our story thus far. Something awful has entered into God's good creation, as our brother Robert so ably instructed us. Adam abdicated his call to protect the garden that God had placed him in to protect. And that included protecting his wife from the deception of the enemy. We see Adam committing the first sins. He committed the first sin of omission and the first sin of commission. Sins of omission are when we don't do the good that we ought to have done. In Adam's case, he didn't get in front of his wife and he didn't slay the dragon, which he ought to have done. And then sins of commission are when we do do what we were forbidden to do. And of course, here that was the grasping and the eating of the tree that was not theirs yet to partake of. And that moment fundamentally altered the entire world. Last year, a small stone struck my windshield, causing a tiny nick, a seemingly small, almost imperceptible imperfection in the otherwise perfect panel of glass. Well, my car has been in the shop for some months for other issues, and I recently had to swing by to to check it out. And that nick has gone all the way down the windshield now from top to bottom. That's what we saw last week. The the first stone of sin had struck the perfect panel of creation. And we need only look around at the world we actually live in now to see how true that spider webbing effect has been. There are two things that are obvious about the world that we live in. It is incomprehensibly beautiful and well-designed, and it is unspeakably broken. We think of the brutal war in Russia and Ukraine, thousands being killed and displaced because of calloused and insatiable desires for power. We see perpetual gossip and perpetual slander and suspicion that is pumped through media outlets. We see the mutilation of minors in the name of gender-affirming care. Brokenness abounds, and these are all cracks that have stemmed from the first sin. This is the power of sin. Of course, we don't need to look out there, though, to see the reality of the impact of Adam's first sin. We need only take a moment's honest assessment of our own hearts. The indwelling envy, the lustful thoughts, the demeaning words that we say to our siblings so easily that God has forbidden. All of this brokenness, all of this sin, both without and within, if you could run the tape backwards, it all culminates in Adam's original sin. It may appear like one little chip in the glass, but it was so much more. Adam's sin had shattered the shalom that God had created. And in Adam, we all fell with him because Adam, as scripture says, was our covenant head. Adam was was God's appointed representative for humanity. Romans 5.12. 
Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death has spread to all men. So this is the story that we are continuing on in. The moment that sin and death entered into the story of the actual world and now impacts and infects us. And I'm going to overlap with Robert just a bit from last week. I'll, I'll pick up with the moment that the Lord, the creator of all, comes to meet the man and the woman after the very first sin. So our text will be Genesis 3, and I'll read 8 through 13 today. So please do open up to Genesis 3. Beginning in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. The Lord said, Who told you that you were naked? Or rendered, So what if you're naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the word of the Lord. So now, before we unpack the conversation between the Lord and the man and the woman, there is one point of clarification uh, that that needs making, because it, it really does change our imagination about the scene, about the setting. And it's, it's something our brother Robert pointed out last week. And it surrounds the phrase, the cool of the day in verse eight. That's how most, if not all translations render it today. Now, the word that is translated cool does not does not mean cool. That's not what that word means. That is a translation choice based on the word. The word actually means spirits or it could be wind as well. So the choice to call it the cool of the day is a play on wind, believing that the intention of the author was to communicate weather, was to communicate the time of the day. But I believe the Lord meant to communicate something far more profound than the weather about the coming of the Lord. I'm with Robert on this one. I believe the better translation is in the spirit of the day. So the beginning of verse 8, I believe, is best read. And they heard the sound. That word could mean voice as well. So we'll contrast this with Revelation in a moment, so that matters. They heard the sound or voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the spirit of the day. And we see the implications here, especially pronounced when we contrast this with Revelation 1.10. So this is John on the Isles of Patmos, and, and he says... I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet voice or sound. So why does that matter? Well, it matters because the scene, I would say, is not of the Lord just going for a stroll at dusk randomly on any day. 
The picture is, I believe, of of the Lord coming down to meet with his people on the first Lord's Day, on the first Sabbath. And he was coming not just for a stroll, but to commune with them and to fellowship with them. He was coming in the spirit of the day when they heard his voice, his sound, not unlike John and Patmos. So now let's read all of verse 8 in in this context. It says, And they heard the sound or the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the spirit of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Was there ever a more heartbreaking sentence penned than that sentence? Here we see the the terrible and the awful impact that sin has when they heard the voice of their king, the source of their life, the source of their joy. Rather than running towards him, proclaiming the first Gloria Patri, which is fitting on the Lord's Day. His voice now came to them as an air raid siren, a warning to flee from him. Because of their sin, humanity was no longer at home amongst the holy. The king and queen of earth who should have stood tallest and should have stood most dignified, who should have led the procession of creation to meet their Lord on the Lord's day, had cast their crowns in the dirt And they now fled for shelter like foreign fugitives while still in the garden of God. So, having come to commune with the man and the woman, but not finding them there, we now continue on in verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And the man said, I heard your voice or I heard your sound. In the garden, I was afraid because I was naked. And so I and so I hid myself. So verse nine is a significant moment. Because this is the first time in Scripture that we hear the Lord speak after sin has entered the world. This is the first time the man has the Lord has spoken since the man fractured the fellowship that existed. And before we consider the Lord's words, we cannot miss his posture. Because this is already incredible grace that reveals the very nature of our God. He is unchanging. So what we learn about him here is still true. And what do we learn? His impulse towards rebellious humanity is first and is always one of gracious pursuits. Just think about your story. All of the things you've done that you're so sorry for. All of the secret sins that were, if on wide display, you would be horrified by. The Lord knows those. And here you sit, invited by the Holy One of Israel. To commune with him, well-dressed, those being forgotten as far as the east is from the west. And that's because he pursued you. That's why you're here. And that's good news. We see this even after the first sin. He didn't need to engage Adam. He already told him 
that disobedience will bring death. On the day you do it, you'll die. He would have been totally justified to just come as a fireball. And Adam could have had zero beef with that. But he didn't. He came first as a searching father, saying, where are you? The Lord is slow to anger, but his impulse, he abounds with steadfast love. And we we see it from the first words out of his mouth after the fall. Don't don't miss that. Don't, Don't jump quickly over that. In fact, that's your salvation. The German reformer Conrad Pelican, that's a cool name, comments on this passage saying, we are shown the kindness of God who takes back in grace someone who has betrayed him and is not yet a suppliant, but is still fleeing headlong out of mercy. God first calls to repentance, rebukes with a zeal for righteousness and watches out for the one who in the midst of his affliction has no idea how fortunate he is. He says, where are you? He didn't have to say that. He did. Because he's good. Now, of course, the Lord was not unaware of what they were. So so he's not asking the question so he could get information. Of course. Rather, the question was so that Adam could get some information about himself. He says, I'm your Lord. I am your creator. You bear my image. And now you're hiding when I came. What happened? Where are you? It was a question that would stir Adam's psychology and force him to personally reckon with the consequence of his choice. He didn't come with condemnation. He came with a question to draw Adam out. And Adam was honest. He said, I'm hiding because your voice was not a comfort but a terror to me now. Because I felt shame at my nakedness. I said Adam was honest. But not really. You see that? Everything he said was true. But it wasn't the whole truth. He had left something else. Namely, he didn't confess his sin. This is the hardest thing, perhaps, for us to do as sinners, is it not? To come completely clean. To own it fully without qualification, without blame shifting, taking responsibility. No, we hate that. We hedge. We tell half-truths. We justify the unjustifiable. And in our pride, we'd rather reach for any fig leaf than ask for forgiveness on totally true terms. This is something we learn about ourselves, is it not? Jesus explained this phenomenon to Nicodemus in John 3, 19. He says, so this is the judgment. So I've come into the world. I'm going to tell you what I have found here. This is my, my judgment on things. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And this is what we see happening in the first sin. Adam now hated the light the exposure to holiness because he had done an evil thing. And it would have been painful and, and humbling to acknowledge the truth. And here's something very dangerous that we see Adam doing. 
That is still a very great temptation for all of us, especially in our day. And it is this. Adam was willing to admit his shame because of his sin, but he was not willing to admit his guilt for his sin. You see the difference there? He was willing to admit the shame he felt because of sin he committed, but he was unwilling to admit his guilt for it. He was willing to say, I ran and hide because I felt ashamed, but he was not willing to say, I sinned against you and I sinned against my wife. He didn't say that. And I'm not reading into this. We'll see in a little bit how he just doubles and triples down here. I'm not slandering Adam here. And this is hugely significant because this positions Adam to be identified primarily as the victim in need of sympathy rather than a sinner in need of salvation. Now, as Robert so importantly noted last week, and hear me here, not all shame we feel is the result of sin we've committed. Shame always is the result of sin, but it's not always because of sin we've committed. Sometimes shame comes when sin has been committed against us. And that is awful and real, and victims need to be walked with with great care and sympathy. So, so, of course, hear me, that's not what I'm talking about here. This is in the context of the first sin. But I am saying in our sinful nature, we are quick to want to take on a victim identity as a means of not having to deal with sin. Again, we'll, we'll see Adam doing this explicitly in just a moment. And, and that is a destructive and damnable impulse. And I'm using those words very carefully. I'm saying that that impulse, I've sinned, but I'm not going to acknowledge it. Rather, I'm going to act like the one that was wrong. That's destructive and damnable. It's destructive because if we have sinned, but cannot convince ourselves, we're real, but excuse me, can convince ourselves we've really been the victim. Well, then we will feel justified in continuing to perpetuate more and more sin that nobody can call us on because that would be mean if they did. So you can insulate yourself from true loving accountability by constantly taking that position. And our our culture inflames this impulse. Our, Our culture, influenced much by secular psychology, encourages us to find as many ways as we can to see ourselves as a victim. To show that that we've been wronged, even when you think of some personality uh, paradigms. The beginning part is, where is your childhood wound? Now, of course, I'm not saying that's not true and that we shouldn't understand our stories and understand the ways we've been sinned against and our proclivities to that. But if our starting point is, I've been victimized, definitely, it's going to be hard for the gospel to seep through because that presumes sin. And again, I said that making ourselves a victim, as we see Adam doing, is not just destructive, but it's damnable. It keeps us from receiving what we need most. The grace and cleansing of forgiveness, which is freely offered in Christ Jesus. Only Christ can justify us. And so if by default we are always trying to justify ourselves, that is a justification that cannot save. At the core, we don't primarily need sympathy. We primarily need salvation. That's what Adam needed. But if we assume that we are a sinner first... And we come to Christ with all of our sin and all of our shame and all of our hurts. If we come humbly, assuming our failings are worse than we can even imagine, we will find that God's grace is so much bigger than we can even imagine. 
For in Christ we find a balm for everything that wages against our souls. As Hebrews 12 sin says, lay aside sins and burdens, whatever. Christ helps. If our issue is sin, if we come to Christ with that sin, we'll find forgiveness. So listen to Ephesians 1, 7 through 8. This is incredible. It says, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavishes upon us. He's not afraid of our sin. He doesn't just give us a little sample to, to, to cover it. He lavishes grace upon us. Grace upon grace when we come with the truth. First John 1 John 1.9 If we'll confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because we don't even know all of our sins. But we don't just find a cold, forensic forgiveness when we come to Christ with our sins or struggles or whatever. In Christ, we do find true sympathy. He really cares. He really knows. He really understands because he experienced it for us. Hebrews 4, 14 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet was without sin. So let us then with confidence not flee, but draw near to him. Why? Because it's a throne of grace now that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And here's what we find. If in our sin we come looking only for sympathy, refusing to confess what needs to be confessed, we won't find sympathy or forgiveness. Why? Because God opposes the proud. But if we come to him humbly with the full truth of who we are, in our sin, in our weakness, looking for grace, we'll get the entire package. Forgiveness and grace and sympathy and help and the true restoration of fellowship with each other and with our God. God only deals in the light. And this is the choice that was before Adam. This was Adam's choice. When he felt the pang of shame because of sin in the presence of God, he was standing at a fork in the road. He could either deal honestly with the sin he committed that brought the shame, which, yes, would have been painful and humbling initially, but would have been the path to grace or he could just try to cover his shame himself using the enemy's lexicon, tools of blame shifting and denying and hiding, which might have brought temporary psychological relief, which perhaps would have protected his pride just for a moment, but would ultimately lead to only more sin and more disconnection and more isolation and more pain. Well... So in verse 11, we see the path that he has decided to take. He's going to tell God about his shame, but not his guilt. He is going to choose victim rather than sinner, which is tragic. Because there is no salvation at the end of that road when you are a sinner. Only the light will set us free. So this is grim at first. However, 
We see the grace of God made manifest again in this interaction. Not just in his initial pursuit of Adam do we see the grace of God, but in forcing Adam to confront the truth of his sin, we see the grace of God. He could have just turned his back at that moment and said, if you're going to do that, then I'm gone. But he didn't. The Lord forces Adam into the light, which we find in verse 11. So I'll read from verse 9 so that we can have a a runway in the flow of conversation here. Verse 9 again. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And the Lord said, so what if you're naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And so there it is. God's not playing Adam's hide and seek. He will not deal in the fog. He cuts through Adam's evasiveness and puts before him the main issue. Did you disobey me? Did you break my law? Did you commit treason against your king? And now continuing on in verse 12 and 13, the man said, well, the the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. And I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, and the serpent deceived me. And I ate. And again, as Robert said last week, that is true. Eve was deceived. Scripture is clear. And Adam wasn't. This is on Adam. Not that she's not responsible. But this is on Adam. She was deceived. And he should have gotten in front of her. And here we see where refusing to own up to our sin on the front end only snowballs into more and more sin. We're here. We have Adam essentially saying, this is everyone's fault but mine. First, it's the woman's fault. And then it's your fault, Lord. In fact, not only am I not going to repent, you actually should repent to me. Lord, well, this is a shift from a few hours ago. Adam says, I don't own anyone an apology. Everyone owes me the apology, which I would say is a good definition for grumbling, isn't it? Thinking God owes you an apology. (laughs) Well, of course, the Lord will not be repenting. And next week we will see the creator take his place as judge. And pronounce the verdict on what the sin of Adam has inflicted upon the good creation. But we're also going to see more grace. Because in the midst of this, the whisper of the way that God himself will take upon himself the curse that Adam pulled upon his own head is first whispered. But in closing, two quick exhortations in light of this text. One, Christian, let this... Awaken worship for you, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what I mean. Look at what sin had done to Adam in less than one day. How corrupting and powerful the impact of sin is on our constitution. And had the Lord not pursued him, and had he not pursued you, we would all be little golems, totally ensnared to the power of darkness. And that's true. We forget that. But Jesus Christ left the glories of heaven and he came to earth with one mission. It was a holy pursuit and it was to break the curse that Adam pulled on his own head. 
and to turn sinners into saints. On the cross, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, broke the power of sin that would have been upon you for eternity had he not done that in time and space 2,000 years ago. Romans 6, 17 through 18. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin. That was all of our stories. That was all of our business cards at one moment. Thanks be to God that you were once a slave to sin. You've now become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed. And check this out. And having been set free from sin, you've become a slave to righteousness. And God is working that out in you. We're not there yet. At least I'm not. But that is your identity. And that is the trajectory of your growth. That is the trellis you live on. At the top, slave of righteousness. Totally holy. Not just pronounced, but actual. And that's why he says thanks be to God. Because that's really good news. Yes, let today's text spur worship and wonder at the grace of God towards you through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second, and finally, Christian, not just worship, but let this be a warning. A warning about the destructive power of unconfessed sin. Unconfessed sin is like mold in the soul that will continue to grow, making you and everyone around you sick until it is not completely and truly dealt with through confession and repentance. Let us not forget that this word from Hebrews 3.13 was written to Christians. So this is something that he wanted Christians to hear. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so I'll, I'll end by obeying that command. Pilgrim Hill, I exhort us in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's check our hearts. Where might there be any hardness because of sin? And here's a good test. Our text today shows that sin leads directly towards blaming and accusing and seeing the sin of others as large and inexcusable and ours as small and easily excusable. So where do you see yourself doing that? Do you default to blame in your family, with your kids, with your spouse? Do you see many specks without ever even thinking to look for a plank? Do you default more quickly to grumbling than to gratitude? Well, all of these would be lights on the dashboard of our hearts, warning us of the deceitfulness of sin. And so I ask again, what, where is that in us? And also, if you identify a place, don't stew on it and become a victim. <laughs> we are Christians, and so we know what to do with our sin. We take it to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, where it was dealt with. We plead the blood of the Son again and again, a thousand times a day, if necessary, because it is an inexhaustible ocean of grace, who any will humbly come with their pail and draw out some more water. John Newton, the great pastor and the great hymn writer, of course he wrote it, Amazing Grace, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, Near the end of his life, right close to his death, he, he said something that's worth dwelling on. He said, although my memory's fading, I remember two things clearly. That I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Oh, 
how good would that be for our fellowship if we understood those things clearly? That we are great sinners and Christ is a great Savior. The more we know this to be true, the happier we will become because we will truly understand how good the good news is, how it's so much better than we thought it was. And here's another thing that happens when we do that. Shame goes away. And here's why. When you've already said it on the front end, it's all true and it's far worse than you even know. What in the world can the enemy do to you? Because he thrives on accusation. And if you say, oh, it's even worse than that condemning accuser, it's all true. That's the reason Christ came with good news, because I exist. Well, he can just go back to hell where he came from, because he has no weapon against you. Christ gets the glory. We get the joy. And that is a sweet arrangement. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you are a pursuing father by default. You are slow to anger, but you abound with steadfast love towards us. We thank you, Lord, that you didn't even wait for us to turn towards you because we could not. We were helpless that you came for us. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you worked in our hearts in such a way that you allowed us to see reality, the, the depths of our sin and the glory of Jesus Christ and his cross and his resurrection. And Father, I pray that we would be a people who deal seriously with our sin because we know how wonderful our Savior is and because we know the enemy's tactics. And Father, I pray too that, that as the gospel gleams in, 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 in brighter light for us, that we could not keep it to ourselves, that we would be moved with love and compassion and earnestness to share the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we would pray the way our Lord taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory.